attract a bookseller here today, unfortunately. Um, I did read it before my trip, um, some weeks ago now. I said I thought it would put you asleep on the plane. But no, I, it, it kept me awake till 2 a.m. the first night I picked it up. It's an absolutely fascinating account. And of course, Bruce, uh, as well as being a, a, a high school political analyst and uh, advisor, is also a cracking writer. And uh, it's a really readable book that not just looks at the Trump presidency, but what it means for Australia. Um, so thank you very much for joining us. It's wonderful to be here. I join you in the Welcome to Country and the message on the referendum. And also, Michael Cooney, a good friend of ours, uh, we worked together, the three of us all worked together when Julia Gillard was Prime Minister, and it's wonderful that you're here today. And it's very nice to say hello to you and to be here. So, onwards. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you. Um, so, we'll get into a chat about the major themes of the book shortly, but um, did you want to just give us a little overview of, of what what prompted you, other than rage, <laughs> to write the book? <laughs> I, I didn't Hold the microphone. Okay. Is, that, is this a little bit better? Is that better? Yes. Okay. Sorry. Um, call me hot lips. Yeah. Uh, I didn't have any intention of writing a book. I've, I've written two other books. One when I was in Washington uh, lobbying and what a good lobbyist was. That book is now obsolete because now it's just money. If, if there's money in the transaction, then how good you are in, that, in an argument doesn't make any difference. And then when I went back, uh, when Obama was elected to work on Capitol Hill for a second time, um, I kept a journal every day of uh, working for the chairman of the House Energy and Commerce Committee. Obamacare came out of that committee. And I, I thought it would be a great political journal, and it turned into a book called uh, The Committee, which I hope would be an HBO special, you know, The Committee. And um, <laughs> which really recounted what those legislative fights were all about. And, and I just didn't have any interest in writing a book, but. Um, uh, Malcolm Knox, uh, who writes for the Herald and the Age from time to time, and uh, is with Alan and Unwin, came to me and he said, we like your writing and what do you think about a book? And I said, I write on American politics and what I'd like to do here in America, in talking about, it, it, here in Australia, in talking about American politics is, I mean, everyone knows my pedigree. I'm a Democrat. I've worked with them for decades, support their values. What I really like to do here is explain why you're seeing what you're seeing in American politics, so that you can understand it better. It's not to say do it this way or do it that way, but to make sense of what's coming across. And the countries really are, uh, Australians pay immense attention to American politics. They did throughout the night, came here 30 years ago, in Clinton's presidency, and, and uh, certainly with uh, George W. Bush and the war, and the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And certainly with Obama, given his um, breakthrough uh, historic presidency, and of course with Trump, which is just, he rivets people. People, that they may hate what they're seeing, but they can't get enough of what they're seeing. And they want to, you know, they absorb it. And the way the news cycles work, when we wake up in the morning here and listen to the 6 a.m. or 7 a.m. news on the radio, it's the end of the day in, in, uh, on the East Coast. And so the lead story most mornings comes out of the United States. And everyone is really quite taken with it. And uh, when Trump, everyone was uh, fascinated with his run and getting the nomination, but then becoming president and the reality of it, I mean, the collective blood pressure in this country really went through the roof. And, uh, and people paid very close attention. So I said to uh, Alan, I'm not, I, I really don't want to write about Australian politics, but anyway, we landed on a book, which was, if Trump comes back, 
what's it going to do and how's it going to affect this country's future and its destiny? And that was a really interesting topic, subject to get into. And so you think about, well, what's Trump going to do on foreign policy? What's going to do on economic policy? What's going to do on trade? What's it going to do to the international institutions that Australia is so heavily invested in and has been since you know the end of World War II, the United Nations and uh, John Curtin and the reorientation to the United States, um, Doc Abbott, and uh, and what so what what will his policies mean, and then what will his political culture mean in a second term, and so that made me look at just not the policy issues and that's sort of half the book, but also since tr Trump is a corruption of American democracy. Does he have the ability to influence forces that will corrupt Australia's democracy? And as I was halfway through the book, I realized it had a happy ending. No, Australia's democracy is exceptionally strong, will withstand Trump in a second <coughs> term, and will do more than survive this country's democracy is sound. But there is an existential question, we'll come to that a little bit later. At the end, if Trump is in uh, power, and what he does to the United States, and then some issues to Australia to think about the alliance at, towards inside a Trump second term. So that's what the book kind of does. How's it going to affect us, our settings, what should be done to counter that and protect Australia's interests across the board, and then what's it going to do to the political culture? That's the book in a nutshell, and yeah. as I said, it's only uh, fifty-nine ninety-five. No. <laughs> <laughs> well worth every cent. Um, so you touch on um, the, the book broadly. It takes several chapters that look at Trump's uh, in, international policy, his domestic policy, his uh, tendency towards nativism and nationalism, and how that will affect uh, our relationship as, as a as a nation, not only as a trading partner, but obviously as a close. Uh, a military and cultural ally of the US. Um, his, his nativism and his nationalism is something uh, that I think you point out in the book, we've, we've resisted largely falling into that trap so far, but we have seen elements of that on the rise in our country and particularly on the weekend. Uh, yes, and I mean, there are um, debates in this country that have gone on for years of immigration policy and what should, should be done. I mean, the immigration wars and the you know, John Howard's uh, uh, time in office and, you know, a real struggle on them. <clears throat> but the country still, on the whole, remains open, it's a multicultural society, remains open to immigration and open to people coming from all walks of life from all countries in the world to help build a stronger Australia, and that's all to the good. What Trump knows how to do is push buttons, and he pushes a nativism button, uh, which is um, against immigrants. His first speech announcing his candidacy in 2015, he comes down the Golden Escalator in Trump Tower in New York, and uh, he talks about Mexicans being rapists and uh, being allowed into the country. That's where he started, and then it's downhill from there. Um, there's uh, isolationism. I mean, uh, Australia projects itself in the world. Uh, some people, of course, think too much with the United States and certain military adventures, but Australia's engaged with the rest of the world, and Trump wants to bring America home. It's America first. Um, you have protectionism. Australia. Australia's economic success is grounded in um, free trade. Australia did a lot to dismantle its system of protections and tariffs and so forth to become a tariff-free, uh, honest, free trader, and sometimes gets punished for doing that by other opportunistic nations. But as a very strong record on that, Trump is for trade wars, and he's for, again, America first and protecting American exports and not having imports from other countries. 
and uh, nationalism. I mean, the degree of, of, uh, of uh, being proud as an American, and that that is number one, and other interests have to be subsidiary to that, and it has to be rewarded in every transaction. At the end, at the end of that transaction, it's got to be a net plus for the United States. So all those things are in play. I think the issue of Trump's attitude to trade and globalization is an interesting one to unpack because there are commentators, usually on the right, who are trying, I think, to create a narrative that suits them, that will say that Biden is similar to Trump in that way, that his Inflation Reduction Act is, is protectionist. Uh, I, I know you don't, you don't agree with that, as nor, nor do I, and see that actually Biden's much closer to Albanese in his approach to industry policy, to investment in uh, manufacturing, but also to what uh, certain people are calling uh, not friend trade, friendly trade rather than free trade. Yeah, when you push buttons, um, you get a reaction, and I think uh, Al Al Bi Biden has kept a lot of um, Trump's trade policies, particularly with respect to China. I mean, none of the China trade war tariffs have really come off, but they are coming off here, thank goodness, uh, for Australian industries, and that's a real uh, testament to the uh, skill of uh, the foreign minister, the prime minister, the trade minister, in pursuing that agenda. Um, and I think what Biden does, he's, look, there's substance to it and there's also politics. There is a reward among key constituencies for protecting America's economic strength by having trade policies that are not as open as possible. But I don't think Biden is extreme. So I understand the criticism, but I don't think it's anything in the same league as what Trump has done. And, I, and the, <clears throat> we were talking earlier, the American political culture is different uh, than, it was, than, it, than it was during the Reagan years and even the Clinton years, where people are looking to government now to stand up and promote things that will really help people. In other words, it's not it, the private sector alone, which was essentially Ronald Reagan's philosophy, um, that governed American politics for a long time. Democrats were defeated running against Reaganism. We're now in a post-Reagan era. Uh, era. Uh, Trump helped accelerate it, but um, Biden is, is recrafting it for the Democratic Party. So <clears throat> the government should stand up to big pharmaceutical companies. It should do more on energy and climate. It should have some of these uh, trade policies. Um, it should do more to ensure that people who are struggling day-to-day uh, -day on cost of living pressures, that that's alleviated by government, not just you're on your own, get a job, take care of yourself. So there, it's a more forceful advocacy for, yeah, big government. And in fact, I see a lot of parallels between, and I think it's one reason why they get along so well, Albanese and Biden. If you think about it, uh, what does Joe Biden stand for? Uh, building a strong middle class, infrastructure programs, cost of living pressures, healthcare policy, clean energy policy, and they're both Catholic. And so it all, uh, I think you see uh, ties uh, between them, and I think that's why they get along so well. And uh, next week, uh, uh, the world crisis permitting, uh, uh, the Prime Minister will be with the President at a state dinner in Washington, and it will be quite an extraordinary show of a genuine affection and consonance on policy, and I think that's a, a good thing. Industry policy, uh, action on climate change, education, these are all... Sounds familiar. They sound very familiar, and also a lot of what per capita has been talking about yeah. for a few years. Full employment embrace is something I'm very happy to see on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, so I think what, what we're seeing there, Bruce, isn't it, is sort of a recognition of some of the, the grievances that drove Trumpism, uh, which are often 
decried as, you know, or described as populism, but recognising where those grievances are legitimate and responding with genuine policy. Yes, I think that's right. And uh, however, you look at Biden today and his, his approval rating is in the low 40s. It's been stuck that way since uh, for after the first six months of his, when he, when he became president. It, it turned against him in the withdrawal from Afghanistan, which was uh, a mess. And, uh, and really hurt him because it raised the question, do you really understand what you're doing here? And it was a terrible humanitarian uh, result and uh, the Taliban back in control in Afghanistan after all that was done there and all the lives lost, terrible. But the economy is not as, the, the economy is strong in headline ways. In other words, uh, employment is up, wages are up. Um, it, it, uh, it, the country has not gone into recession. But interest rates are high. I spent about three months in the U.S. so far this year. And uh, again, these cost of living pressures are intense. Uh, you always see petrol prices, food prices. My favorite story was a bag of cookies in uh, Whole Foods. Uh, one week it was uh, $11.99, next week it was $13.99 for cookie. And, and people, they have um, uh, children who, um, of course, who, who uh, school lunches cost more. There's less support from the schools. Things are just, until that, until that recedes, um, his approval will stay in the low 40s. So then the question is, can he win re-election against Trump if, um, if Trump wins the nomination next year? I think he can uh, because uh, it will be a choice. It's not, as Biden says, it's not me against the Almighty. It's me against another person. And what's the, what's the you see, you'll see me and Trump next to each other. And I think most people make a decision that Trump is too extreme and too, um, off his rocker uh, to be president in a second term. Um, but uh, whether he, he, he still needs to seal the deal in terms of confidence, and age is a factor. I was just gonna say we need to talk about age. Oh, what was the question? I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the one with Jeff <laughs> No, I, I, it's, it's, it's um, obvious, I mean, you point out in the book that only around, you know, <clears throat> one in seven or so of Republicans are really enthusiastic about Trump and about, well, about one in four, four of Republicans are enthusiastic about Trump, but only about one in seven Democrats are really enthusiastic about Biden, and that's largely because of the coverage of his age. Yeah, I think what happens on uh, with the age issue, it is a drag on his presidency. It's raised all the time. The issue's not going away. It's uh, as strong as it has been. It, it just keeps being brought up. Um, and. Uh, I think the effect it will have is drive down support from younger, we don't have compulsory voting in America, it's all voluntary voting. So younger voters, uh, some, some voter constituencies of color may have less enthusiasm for Biden because they're worried about his age. And that is a danger, you know, because the Trump voters are extremely enthusiastic about him. I mean, seven in 10 Republican voters believe the election was stolen. Seven in 10 Republican voters believe Trump uh, should, should be president again. And uh, what, Trump has, he, I think he is a unique figure because of how he uh, presents himself and how people relate to him. When he's in a room, when he's on television, he takes all the oxygen out of the room. I mean, that's what we want to do, Michael, with Julia Gillard, right? And once in a while it happens, like on a misogyny speech, but, uh, and it's a, a very powerful, um, it, 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 it's a real power that he has. Uh, and he uh, knows how to use it. So I'm asked, what are his chances of being renominated? And I think right now he's a, the prohibitive uh, favorite. And why is that so? 
What he's done is take all the attacks against him and turn them into political argument where he is the victim of the, of the politics being played against him. So he's been indicted on 91 criminal charges. What he says is, that is the weaponization of the Justice Department by my opponent, the President of the United States, so that they are instructed to come after me, indict me, and take me off the ticket. And that is the biggest interference in, in, uh, in the political process in American history and is a disgrace and an outrage. And his people believe that. And that's half of his appeal with Republican voters. And the country is hyper-partisan. I mean, we think we're hyper-partisan here because we have a Westminster system and so forth. What's happening to America is the, West, is the Westminsterization of the political culture. So you're on one side, you're not on the other side. And the, the chances of bipartisanship diminish. And that is really important. But what, aside from saying that I'm a victim of um, uh, legal processes being uh, politicized uh, against me, he also makes um, uh, cultural arguments, which are, are extremely effective. And I'd just like to read a few words from some of his recent political speeches so that you can hear for yourself what he's saying and why it is so effective. And this is what he says at his rallies. He says, in the end, they're not coming after me. They're coming after you. We, either we have a deep state or we have a democracy. Either the deep state, the deep state is what's inside the government that comes after him. Either the deep state destroys America or we destroy the deep state. This is, and then he goes almost biblically, says, this is the final battle. Um, with you at my side, we will demolish the deep state. And he says other things like, um, they're just destroying our country. If we don't take it back, if we don't take it back in 24, I really believe we're not going to have a country left. I'm be and then he says, I'm being indicted for you. That's not part of the job description but I'm being indicted for you. And his people, I think these are very direct, very clear, very powerful words, and they animate his supporters. There's they drive them, what struck me is they drive them to a kind of religious fervor. There's, yes. a, there's a Christ like I'm being crucified on your behalf. Yes. Driving that religious fervor amongst his supporters. And, and it seems to me more recently he's become more extreme. I, I do think there are real issues about his, um, uh, well, I think he knows what he's doing, but it's, it's just getting, well, listen for yourself. He said that the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, committed treason and suggested that he be executed. He said this at a rally a couple weeks ago. Uh, he uh, called uh, the New York Attorney General, he's in court over his business practices, he was in court yesterday in New York. Um, and he's being sued for fraudulently, uh, for inflating his wealth and stating his properties are worth a lot more than they are. He called the Attorney General a racist and a monster. He said that the special counsel, Jack Smith, this is the January 6th case that will come to trial next year, um, who's, uh, he said that Jack Smith is deranged and a psycho who looks like a crackhead. Um, and then he said something that I think is really dangerous. He said, migrants illegally crossing into the United States are, quote, poisoning the blood of our country. This is Nazism. And he, he knows he's doing it, and he knows it has an effect, and he knows he's reaching the people he wants to reach, and they will vote. And that's where we are. It's terrifying. And I, let, let's, you, you talk about... He, he, has, he has one other line that I really, really like. He says, no president has ever fought for Christians as hard as I have. Oh, gee. No. Oh. In God we trust. It is white supremacy. Yeah. Uh, un, undisguised. You talk about what if, if well, almost certainly when he is the Republican nominee uh, in the 2024 election and if 
he wins that election. What is driving that campaign? And you describe it as primarily vengeance. Yes. Uh, uh, the, um, Trump would bring to a second term all the lessons he learned from the first term, which is who stopped him from doing what he wanted to do and why. So he really wants to uh, upend NATO and probably pull out. He probably wants to uh, withdraw troops from uh, the Asia Pacific and bring them home. He wants to um, undercut international organizations, everything from the United Nations, the World Health Organization, World Trade Organization, all that stuff. Uh, he wants to build his wall with Mexico. Uh, and he, he looks at um, what he was not able to do and who was responsible for it, and he wants to make sure that doesn't happen again. So when he chooses a vice presidential candidate, he's not going to choose someone like Mike Pence who could ultimately cross him at a crucial time in the political process. He'll make sure that whoever he chooses um, will be uh, absolutely subservient to everything that he says he wants to do. He will not have a chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff who says, um, I will not allow the military to go uh, be ordered by you to go into the streets to put down uh, violence uh, caused by in civil rights marches or Black Lives Matter or whatever. I'm not going to let the armed forces of the United States do that. He will never have an attorney general who um, will not follow his orders as to who's to be prosecuted and who's to be pardoned. And, and he will go, just go down the line on key positions. He will never have a chief of staff like John Kelly who he, he came within an hour of signing a piece of paper which would have taken U.S. troops out of South Korea. And the chief of staff had someone take that piece of paper from his desk and Trump never saw it again. And uh, he will not have a chief of staff who would do things like that. So in- and, and, so, and so vengeance is the ultimate, he wants to punish people who crossed him. So in the event of, of such a presidency, and you quote uh, in the foreword to your book, Gerald Ford's words on succeeding Nixon after he yes. resigned in disgrace. Our long national nightmare is over. Yes, our constitution works. Our great republic is a government of laws and not of men. Are there elements, what is there in the constitution that would protect us against a Trump presidency that took that extreme approach of silencing critics of surrounding himself with silence? Well, it's a question of how well the institutions work. Now, there's a fundamental issue which is um, becoming apparent in that the institutions in America, um, to, looking at the Congress and the Supreme Court are, and the presidential election, are undemocratic. Uh, and uh, there's inc increasing frustration about it, but whether things can be done to fix it is another issue. The 2016 election, uh, Hillary Clinton wins the popular vote, but Donald Trump is elected president because of this uh, thing called the Electoral College which uh, unfortunately too many Australians are too familiar with after watching all the coverage. And um, it doesn't, it means, it means that there isn't a direct election of the president, so the system is undemocratic. In the Senate, uh, the country wants, um, women across the country want the right to an abortion and uh, to decide their own uh, health uh, services that they can access. Uh, they want gun control, but the Senate has rules. You need to pass the House and the Senate, just like here in Australia, before something can become law. And you need a supermajority to enact those. Each state in the Senate has two votes. So the two senators from Wyoming equal the two senators from California, equal the two senators from New York. And uh, that is the, the two senators per state go back to the Constitution and amending the US Constitution is harder than even passing a referendum here in Australia. So that sticks. And then you have a Supreme Court in which um, Trump was able to politicize the appointments process because of how certain vacancies came up. 
and the Supreme Court used to be the, the famous saying was the Supreme Court follows uh, the will of the American people, but it doesn't anymore. It now sets an agenda that the American people react to. People react, but the Supreme Court doesn't change. So if the fundamental institutions of the presidency, the Congress, and the Supreme Court are not working to reflect the popular will, that increases cynicism and sometimes apathy and a lot of anger as to what's happening in US politics. So that is a pretty um, fundamental issue. And so it, if Trump, um, again, knowing what he wants to accomplish, knowing who can stand in his way, uh, he can jawbone these institutions not to rise up and assert their constitutional place in the uh, domestic order uh, to, get things, uh, to get things done. Um, right now, uh, overnight, and you'll, if you wake up tomorrow morning, you'll hear more. The, the uh, man who's on the floor right now to become Speaker of the House of Representatives, a fellow named Jim Jordan, Republican of Ohio, founder of the House Freedom Caucus, um, head of the Judiciary Committee, uh, the lead person for the impeachment of President Biden, is running for Speaker. He is, as of now, uh, 20 votes short of becoming Speaker. Um, we will see overnight how many arms he can break and next he can, you know, chew off uh, and we'll see when the vote is taken tomorrow. <laughs> by this time tomorrow. And if you have, and he was working with Donald Trump on January 6th to kind of maximize the effect of the crowd <clears throat> that was gathered at the Capitol that day. I'm not saying he incited violence, but I'm saying that they uh, were wholly supportive of the effort and the effort was designed to stop the certification of the election to overturn an election illegally, which is why Mike Pence didn't do it and why Trump was extremely angry with him. Well, Speaker of the House Jim Jordan, in the 2024 election, if we the same sort of circumstances arise, who knows what he's going to do? And will we have a legitimately elected president? I don't want to scare anybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, it's really not a big deal. But. We will turn to, to uh, more closely what it means for Australia in a moment, but there are a few things that have emerged since you finished the book, or, or that have become more clear since you finished the book, and one of those goes to this issue of how institutions will respond, uh, which is the third party uh, run by Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Yeah. Uh, if, and, and it's a fascinating, I mean, you, you talk in the book about having grown up under the Kennedys, yes. uh, you know, and now experiencing the opposite of that. But seeing someone that was a Democrat hero, was a very well-respected environmental lawyer, has now become, you know, if anything, extremely populist, uh, almost cooker in many ways. Um, his, there are some commentators now saying that he could pull enough votes to deny either Biden or Trump a majority in the Electoral College. And if that occurs, then there's this bizarre clause in the 12th Amendment that means that the House gets to elect the, the president. What do you think the likelihood of that is? And if it happened, where would we end up? Um, there's, there are mixed views on it because we don't know how his vote is going to go and, where, and who he's going to draw from. He takes extreme Robert Kennedy Jr. He's been disavowed by many members of his family, including Ambassador Caroline Kennedy uh, and, and her son, uh, who's the president's grandson, the former John F. Kennedy's grandson also believes that his uncle is a, a disgrace. Um, but, and and uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is against vaccinations and other kinds of extreme beliefs. Uh, so the question is, where does he draw support from? Well, Donald Trump is against vaccinations too, and so maybe he draws from Trump. 
But we had a little dry run of this in the 2000 election in Florida when Ralph Nader was running, the noted environmentalist. Nader drew enough votes in Florida to deny Al Gore victory. If Gore had carried Florida, he would have been president. So there can be very perverted outcomes from this. There's nothing you can do to control it except have people educated in voting. But again, is the Biden vote really going to turn out? How strong is the Trump vote going to be and where does this guy go? So it's an issue. And it's the turnout that's the difference, the it's great turn, difference yes. between America and here. You talk about one of the bulwarks <coughs> against what's happening in America, that extreme polarization in Australia being first and foremost compulsory voting. Yes. Uh, so this is, so again, midway through the book, I reach a conclusion that uh, we were going to be okay. And why are we going to be okay? Because I started looking at the institutions of democracy that are in this country. And first and foremost is compulsory voting. I mean, it really means, and uh, Julia Gillard made several speech, has made several speeches on this. It means the country's going to land center left or center right. It's going to be okay. Second, you have um, a Westminster system. Well, you also have an Australian Electoral Commission that does a fantastic job. And uh, the person in the wealthiest suburbs of, of this city has the same registration process as the a person in the most remote Aboriginal community in Australia when they sit down to get on the voting roll. So race does not affect who votes in this country. It affects a lot of other things, but not who votes. And it also doesn't affect how votes are counted. In the United States, all 50 states have different systems for counting the votes and different mechanisms, voting machines, paper ballots, this, that, and the other. There's one system here, you have scrutineers, and every result is um, honored, uh, even when uh, someone wins a, a seat in the reps by you know 30 votes. It doesn't go to court. They accept the result. So there's a big lie in America who won the 2020 election that Trump says. There's no big lie in Australia. We have a Westminster system where the next prime minister, there can't be a blow-in to become prime minister. Clive Palmer will never be prime minister. Polly Hansen will never be prime minister. Twiggy Forrest will never be prime minister. The Prime Minister comes from the head of the party that has a majority in the House of Representatives. That means that they are a part of the Westminster culture. It likely means that they've served for many, many years before they reach that post. That means they have those values inside, so their gyroscopes are aligned with the, uh, with the culture that governs the country. There's, there's no extremists. And in fact, when something happens, like um, the former Prime Minister, who um, arrogated uh, certain cabinet offices to his jurisdiction. <clears throat> well, he was censured, and that was the first time a censure had occurred of a f present or former prime minister here. Trump was indicted twice, was uh, impeached twice, but not convicted. So you have these, these differences. You don't have when a, recently we got a new uh, chief justice on the high court. She, uh, he, uh, did not go to a Senate confirmation and asked, uh, well, where do you stand on abortion before you vote on whether or not this person should be Chief Justice in the High Court? Cabinet ministers come from the, from the uh, parliament. Uh, in the United States, a cabinet minister can come from anywhere in the country. And, the, you know, business background, labor lawyer background, whatever. And so, so it's the consistency and the rules which preserve democracy. And that's why this system, and particularly given the voting, uh, and how it is um, universal, compulsory, and policed, ensure that the anti-democratic trends in the United States will not overturn or corrupt the system. Thank God for that. Yeah. Uh, God save the queen. <laughs> I want to touch now. I want to touch now on 
the implications of a Trump presidency for uh, Australia's international relations, for foreign relations more broadly, but also talk about the fact that we, we meet today possibly, probably one of the most uh, volatile moments in world peace that we've seen for some time. Uh, what's your reflection on A, what's happening now in the Middle East? I can't let you go without getting that risk of your expertise. <laughs> but also, uh, given the geopolitical headwinds we find ourselves facing, and we're heading into an election year in the US, how volatile that might become. You know, even <clears throat> excuse me. Even when a president does a really great job in foreign policy, it doesn't guarantee that they win re-election. Uh, George H. W. Bush was the hero of the Kuwait War, and uh, he comes out of that a, 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 a tremendous victory over Saddam Hussein and his invasion and so forth. And uh, he's riding at 80 percent popularity. And uh, 18 months later, he's defeated by Bill Clinton because the economy wasn't so good. So even if something uh, happened to Churchill after World War II, uh, well, yes. <laughs> Yeah, I beat, I beat the Nazis. What else do you need me to do? And and uh, and so so Biden, even if uh, Ukraine comes good, and even if um, there is peace in the Middle East, uh, doesn't necessarily guarantee that it burnishes his credentials. It doesn't guarantee uh, victory. As far as far as what's uh, occurring, I I am very pleased that uh, Biden is in Israel right now or on his way. He'll get there shortly. Um, he has a lot of uh, leverage, and leverage is everything that you need right now. The leverage comes from the loyalty to Israel, uh, to uh, the, this government, as difficult as some of those challenges are with his government, uh, and that gives him a more than a seat at the table, but I think he can use his uh, abilities and his suasion to achieve a couple things. Um, first, there has to be humanitarian relief as far as Gaza is concerned. Second, uh, more and more people, read Tom Friedman this morning, are really cautioning against the effects of a major invasion of the Gaza Strip and what that does. Third, you have Hezbollah in the north with um, uh, missiles and a lot of people and a lot of agitation. And you, that, you want that border to stay. It's not quiet now, but you certainly don't want it to erupt. And you have immense tensions in the West Bank of uh, unfulfilled dreams and destinies there. And you have Iran behind all those places. So I think we're at a moment where either this uh, um, terrible situation and what Hamas did going into Israel was um, horrific. Uh, it, so what you have is a, a, we're at a uh, fork in the road, just as Yogi Berra would say, when you come to a fork in the road, take it, right? <laughs> and, and, and there's a question, are we going to go towards an expanded war which would really consume about everything, or can this be um, managed to an outcome where the worst consequences don't occur. So all, I just say over the next two, three days, all strength of President Biden, and he's the only one who has the ability to do this with all the players. So I'm, I, I am hopeful, but it is very dangerous. I have not been as nervous flying uh, from Dubai to Melbourne as I was over the last couple of days, I have to say. It was, uh, uh, I'm not usually scared on flights anymore, but it was quite confronting. Um, I will take questions from all of you, I promise I could go on all day. But um, I want to talk, lastly, about the role of the media. You talk about, uh, and we can't not do this, Bruce Saf, unfortunately for him, had carriage of our doomed media reform package when we were both working for the Gilead. We only wanted the right thing, you know? Yeah, <laughs> we only wanted That's the right thing. We may have gone about it slightly the wrong way. Uh, but, so the role of the media is something I want to talk about. You talk in the, in the book about 
Trump's incredible hold over particularly cable news in America, and that no matter what he did, it got covered with the same kind of legitimacy as did anything Clinton said. And I think we saw, uh, Dennis Mueller's got a great piece in the conversation, if you haven't read it, uh, about the role of the media in the referendum here, and that a lot of the lies and the mistruths were covered uh, as though they were presenting a balanced point of view. Uh, how do we, I, I, I genuinely believe, it's that old expression that if uh, someone tells you it's raining and another person tells you it's not, the role of the media isn't to present both sides, it's to look out the window and see what's going on. Uh, and so we've seen a failure, I think, uh, in coverage of the referendum here. And, for, and it was so essential to Trump's rise in the US. But governments can go too far in trying to address these things, in trying to police the media. How do we manage that? I have a contrarian view. I, I actually think the power of uh, News Corp and, and uh, its outlets are um, in, in decline as far as influence on outcomes. And I point to the elections here in Victoria, elections in New South Wales, and certainly in Queensland, at least for the time being. Um, it, and, and so, again, the issue is, uh, can this um, poison the political culture because uh, people ad adopt the, those lines and then act on them and so forth? And again, because of where the democracy safeguards are, the Westminster system, I think it has just limited effect. But um, it, what we could see in the referendum, uh, particularly, I think the referendum principally failed because it wasn't bipartisan. If it had been bipartisan, I just think all this would have, uh, the noise might have been there, but it would have washed away, and I think uh, the referendum would have passed. So I can't directly say that the, uh, those arguments uh, sank the uh, referendum. I, I do think the opposition of the, of the uh, Liberal Party and the Nationals really did sink it. So, um, and, and I, 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 was, I wanted, and the, in the book I argued that it was imperative to pass the voice because, not that it would keep, the voice and everything else we do won't keep Trump messages out, but the voice would help put in place policies so that those, so that progressive things to protect the interests of um, First Nations peoples and other people in this country, that they could be implemented and put in place and so they, so those, the First Nations people would be stronger and can um, withstand efforts to cut back on what is equitable for them in our society. So that was my really argument on media and, and uh, what the voice uh, and its effect on the voice. Um, but if you look at this Sky News audience and so forth, it's just um, uh, not tiny, but it's much smaller than the ABC and the television networks. And I do argue for full funding of the ABC on a long-term basis so that it can ride these waves out. And, uh, and I think that that has been put in place with the five-year funding program. So in, in, and also, because it is kind of wide open, you were, uh, a friend at the table here was talking about, she watches TikTok all, every day and is, uh, uh, could pick up you know, what is being said on social media. I think it is wide open, and I think that uh, that competition of um, ideas and outlets and so forth, I think it dissipates uh, concentrated power with a certain point of view that will affect things long term. So I'm, I'm kind of optimistic on the media front. Sorry to disappoint no, you. No, uh, that doesn't. Dis I, I'm a relentless optimist, so I would still be doing this job. Um, I could. There's a, another half dozen things I'd like to ask you about, but I'm mindful that you do have to leave at two, and so I want to open it up. I'm going to go to Barbara first. Bruce, could you tell us a bit more about the Democrats? We, we, you, you've 
you've kind of mentioned it, talking about the Robert Kennedy issue, but are the Democrats and the younger ones likely to understand and work towards the re-election of Biden? It's a really, uh, it's very interesting. I'm, glad, I'm really glad you raised it. Um, a lot of people say he's too old, he can't be re-elected, why don't we replace him with somebody? And the answer to that is, first of all, there is a whole generation of uh, Democrats. The next generation is um, uh, wide-ranging, very able. You have Gavin Newsom, governor of California, Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan, and a whole bunch of other people. And uh, so they're there. So the question is, well, why didn't someone try and stop Biden from running for re-election? And the answer to that question goes back to Jimmy Carter, who turned 99, you know, a couple weeks ago, amazing. Uh, and in 1980, um, if you recall that, time, uh, there was the Iran hostage crisis, and there was a terrible economy with double-digit interest rates, and things were going really bad. And Carter um, was not popular at all. So Ted Kennedy steps up and says, I'm challenging the president. And it was a, a really titanic battle. Uh, it came very close, but Carter, being president, had more control over the apparatus, survived the challenge, and was nominated. And then he loses to Ronald Reagan. So you take on an incumbent president, and what do you get? Your worst nightmare in the next election. And that's in the DNA of, of, um, of Democratic leaders today. In, in another 10 or 20 years, that DNA may be gone. And so everyone knew if you would have a primary challenge, incredible, if Gavin Newsom had taken on Joe Biden, you would have split the party. And because, um, I mean, Biden is viewed by Democrats as successful for what he's done, uh, everything on uh, uh, the environment on healthcare, education, social support, all that stuff. And they, th he's, he is not a failed president. So th they uh, have absorbed that history and that's why he's not challenged. And so, so here we are. And, they, and, and Biden feels, when they look at me and they look at Trump and they look at what Trump could do, they're gonna make the same decision they made four years ago and they're gonna vote for me. But it's a hell of a gamble, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I want to bring it to Australia, back to oh, Australia. No, we want to bring Trump to Australia. <laughs> um, Bridget McKenzie called Mike uh, Pajulo when he was getting when he was in problems that he's a patriot, almost like what he says and does should not be challenged. Um, I wonder whether um, the same thing. Uh, we've got to really watch that uh, that mentality here, and uh, in particular, Jacinda Price. Basically, um, almost like a patriot, a cult patriot. Here you have a civil service is supposed to be independent and insulated from political pressures, and people work their will. And let's hope that that is. You know, as Henry Kissinger would say, I never interfere in the domestic politics of another country. So I don't, <laughs> I'm gonna, I don't let that go. Mm -hmm. uh, in the book, you mentioned about Albanese and what that relationship could yeah. be. Uh, you talk about that basically Trump wouldn't be so kind because he comes from public housing, he's a left winger. Uh, do you think that um, it would affect the alliance in any way? or? Do you think that Trump will still accept that alliance despite having Albanese as, as a... So I, I think it'll be a very difficult personal relationship because I think uh, Trump would look at Albanese and say, you're not me, you're far away from me, and uh, I don't, and you're a leftist, and you're a union guy, and I hate unions, and I think um, 
And also, he probably doesn't like his hair, and he doesn't like his suit, and he doesn't like his glasses. And he says, you don't look like central casting to me. Um, so I think it could be, on a personal level, very rough. Now, I think uh, the prime minister, as any prime minister, would try and manage a relationship as well as possible. And, and if you think back on all the nations dealing with Trump in the first term, um, Australia came out uh, better than almost all of them. And there was expert management, really terrific management, by Joe Hockey and Arthur Sinodinos. Uh, plus the uh, bureaucracy, you know, the ministers, they really did a good job. And the business community helped, and Greg Norman helps and all that stuff. So it came out okay. Uh, but I, I do think that um, personally there would be problems. So, uh, so the issue, there are two classes of issues. One is um, with foreign policy, trade, economic policy, and so forth. So let's take AUKUS for a moment. I think Trump is going to come in and look at, regardless of whether you feel about AUKUS, and I think there's there are real issues by a lot of people about AUKUS and whether we should do it, but it's on the table. It's being uh, pursued. Uh, I think Trump will look at AUKUS and say, uh, oh, that sounds kind of nice. I like the British, you know, I like, like Australia, but are we getting enough in the United States out of this deal? Where are those subs going to be made? How many workers are they going to get? How much do we get? What are they paying for this? And I think he'll look at it in very transactional terms. Um, so that's one issue. And then on the foreign relations, I think uh, Trump would have, I can't imagine Trump, uh, well, there, I think there could be issues with the Quad. Uh, you'll never see Trump at an ASEAN meeting. You know, so so where does, how does Australia pick up its interests in this region? And what I argue for is a, a commanding presence by Australia across the Asia Pacific. That is already underway. Penny Wong is doing an extraordinary job, uh, supported by the Prime Minister, with Australia's relations across the region. So that's good. But the existential question, which um, I want to get to before we were for the hour, the existential question is: What if Trump uh, really is unleashed? Vengeance occurs, and he starts um, uh, tearing down America's democracy, so it doesn't work. So what does that mean? Let's say uh, that, uh, that he doesn't. He starts. He stops following laws passed by Congress. Let's say that he stops following orders of the Supreme Court, rulings of the Supreme Court or he messes with them because he doesn't like some things that he said that they said. Let's say that he goes after uh, the television licenses of networks he doesn't like. He had a speech against Comcast and NBC last week. Let's say he tells the IRS, I want you to investigate these people. Let's say he says to the Attorney General, I want these people prosecuted because they're enemies of, 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 of me and my, and my government. And, and he calls the press the enemies of the people, right? And he goes back to Joe Stalin to do that. So if, if, if this happens and he, be, and he says, I don't like unrest in our cities, I am sending troops for law and order in the cities of America. If these things unfold, well, America's not America anymore. And the democracy is not a democracy anymore. So the question, in addition to all the policy issues at that point is for, for Australia, why are we aligned? We are aligned with the United States, why? Because we share values. We're democracies. It goes back to you know, World War II. We believe in each other. If America is not a democracy, why are we aligned with it under Trump? And that poses, I think, really big questions about the future of Australia's future in this world, if that happens. And so that's why I do have an interim happy ending, but an ending, another ending of uh, questions about where is this going to go. That is indeed Again, I'm really happy to cheer up the It is reported um, today that Trump had declassified 
documents that possibly led to um, some people disappearing in Russia. And he's obviously been very careless with security documents. Will that affect you know, the Five Eyes and anything? I mean, isn't there a danger that if he gets into power, that he will use any security measures he hears about to his own purpose, and how will that affect our security? Uh, I, I think a lot of countries, the five, five a lot of countries, all, I think all Western allies are beginning to look at what my book looks at is if he comes back, what's he gonna do, how to protect ourselves? And yeah, classified, those relationships are really important. Um, I do think it's a legal matter. Um, the case, the indictments of him for mishandling classified documents from all the lawyers that I have uh, observed on television and so forth and read things, um, uh, I believe that case is pretty strong. And I think it's a relatively simple case to prosecute. The trial for that is May. Um, and the election, of course, is in November. Now, that, that gets us to another issue. How does the legal stuff, uh, what's the overlay with the political calendar? If you look at the political calendar, the, the pre-selections, the presidential primaries are early. The legal proceedings are later. So you could have, by April, mid-April, uh, most of the political pre-selections, the primaries, concluded with Trump as the presumptive nominee. But he will not have been convicted in any court. I don't, I'm not saying he's going to be convicted, but he, those proceedings will still be open. So that means that the Republican Party could nominate someone who's in jeopardy of being convicted before the election, because I think there could be verdicts in the August, September, October time frame. And we haven't been you know, I'd like to say it's unprecedented how many times we're saying that something is unprecedented. But uh, we, that's the situation that uh, the Republican Party could find itself in. And then that raises a question, just as if you would have, let's say someone, a leader was running for re-election here, and something abhorrent came out about their character or their actions, what would the party do? They'd replace him or her. Uh, so what happens if uh, Trump is convicted before the election? Does the Republican Party say we're taking you off the ticket? We haven't been there. No one knows the answer to that. I don't know whether we're going to face it, but that is a possibility. Aside from that, I'm leaking as much as I can. <laughs> Thanks, Bruce. Uh, about a month ago, Carl Rowe, uh, in, in you was suggesting that the party, the Democrats or the Republicans, the party that managed to pre-select someone other than the Biden or Trump would have no trouble in winning the next election. And I think his thesis was, and as the debates went on, it was likely that one of the other candidates would emerge to take on Trump, but it sort of really hasn't happened. It, it, that's a possibility? It hasn't happened yet. All I can say is Iowa is January 15th. That's the first primary. New Hampshire is um, in early February. Um, uh, the best chance to stop Trump is for him to get beaten in one or both of those primaries. But whether any of the candidates there, whether Nikki Haley can do it or Ron DeSantis can do it, I d I, it's in doubt right now. I mean, he really does have this command over uh, Republican voters. They want him back. And um, they're not at all embarrassed or deterred, given the legal peril that he is in and, and the, the clear character issues that exist. I mean, I was, you know, you, if you're going to stop somebody, you got to take them on and take them down. 
And I don't see anyone standing up and saying, the emperor has no clothes. And can't you see that? That hasn't happened. And it hasn't happened because of fear. Just another little story. So Jim Jordan, who I talked about earlier running for speaker, you know what he had done over the past couple of days? Sean Hannity is the biggest star on Fox News. He has the biggest audience. Um, and he, uh, very, very close to Trump, very powerful. Trump has endorsed Jordan. So Sean Hannity has one of his producers call up all these Republican congressmen and say, um, we want to know uh, whether uh, Representative X is going to vote for Jim Jordan. And uh, we want to know why, with the war in Ukraine, war in Israel, southern border out of control, why Representative X is not supporting Jim Jordan. I mean, can you imagine if a producer from the ABC called up <laughs> offices in Parliament and said, uh, we want to know why Representative so-and-so is not supporting. Anyway, that's what goes on. It's really unprecedented. Unprecedented. <laughs> Last question. Um, uh, what you said about Australia uh, and um, uh, the AEC and um, universal suffrage and everybody voting, I completely agree with. And I, I really, I, I think that if, in the next uh, cultural war that's coming out of the right is going to be an attack on those issues. And I, I, would, I would really like, in, in Australia, yeah. and I would really like to see the Labor Party now actually go into some campaign of supporting, uh, uh, telling everybody, explain to everybody how good this thing is we've got, what a good bunch they are. Yeah. Because I, I really agree with you. Yeah, yeah it, civics it, education. But, but, I mean, this, but this, this has happened. Uh, there was uh, Prime Minister Morrison had a, had a proposal to, for uh, yeah. voter ID, and, right. and it didn't get up. And that was under his government, yeah. when yeah. The, the atmosphere was better to, to do it. And so, yes, the, uh, people will stand up and say, well, we ought to have this. I mean, some people say we should have voluntary voting, you know. Yeah, they are. But uh, I don't. I, I think the system is strong. People believe in it. They're invested in it. I don't see any credible challenge to it. But we. Get, what's the point? You got to be vigilant to yeah. these things, yeah. and that is very important. Yeah. It's it's a kind of circular motion, though, isn't it? The fact that we have compulsory voting keeps people engaged enough so that they're aware of how important it is. Yeah, the fine also helps. Yeah, the fine, the fine's not <laughs> um, That is, unfortunately, all we've got time for today. As I said, I could have put this conversation going on a long time. Bruce, thank you so much. Thank if you, you haven't read the book, highly recommended. Uh, not only fascinating uh, analysis of Trump's presidency, but of what it means for us, and very, very readable. Couldn't put it down. Uh, really do go and get yourself a copy. Thank you again, Bruce, thank for joining you. us. I'm